Uh, last week on Saturday, I was at a kid's birthday party. This is sort of our life at the moment, attending kids' birthday parties. This one was in town at the PCYC in their uh, gymnasium. Uh, so we're talking those padded floors, uh, balance beams, uh, trampolines, you know, those rings that gymnasts use, and that fat rope from floor to the ceiling that, that you can climb hand over hand. Uh, it was an hour of free play before the cake, and the adults were allowed in there with the kids. Started out with the adults watching the kids, you know how it is, the adults helping the, the kids, and it ended up with the kids watching the adults. Uh, the longer you're in a place like this, the more dangerous it becomes. Not because the kids become more adventurous, but because if, you, if you're looking at that rope for almost an hour, you begin to believe that you can actually climb the thing. Uh, our time in the room was almost up, and uh, having thought about it, I, I walked over to, to the rope. Just as I arrived at the rope, there was another dad maybe he was thinking something similar, uh, and he went in front of me. Uh, He climbed it all the way to the roof like a cat, just hand over hand, all the way up, didn't even use his legs. It was amazing. Uh, I saw that and I thought better of it. Uh, Just sort of took a few steps back casually and leaned against the wall as though, you know, just observing. Uh, That dad... And another dad ended up having some friendly rivalry, a little bit of a competition, and it was an absolute joy uh, to watch. My excuse for not getting involved is, of course, you know I'm getting older. Uh, And I like to think that I'm carrying a few injuries as well. Uh, This afternoon, as we sort of step back into the first century, as we've been reading Matthew's Gospel uh, there's some rivalry going on. You, you may have noticed that as, as John read. It's not two almost middle-aged dads competing in a gymnasium for fun, but it's three separate groups questioning Jesus in an attempt to trap him. They're testing Jesus. They're competing with Jesus, if you like. Uh, it's as though these different groups, they're putting Jesus on trial. Uh, We're going to look at those three attempts to trap and then right at the end of the chapter verse 41 to 46 we'll see Jesus's explanation of what is actually really going on here. The first attempt verse 15 to to 22 it's two groups who ordinarily don't get along uh, joining together to trap Jesus. There's nothing like being united by the thing that you oppose, is there? Uh, When we hear the name Pharisee, verse 15, we think Jewish religious leader. And when we hear Herodians, verse 16, we think Herodian, Herod, supportive of King Herod, and so supportive of the Roman rule. What we have is a group, the Pharisees, who are, are against paying the tax that the Romans enforced on the people living under their rule and a group in the Herodians who are for paying that tax. Together, they ask Jesus, is it okay to pay the tax? It's obviously a massive setup. How's he going to answer? 
Just notice, though, before they ask the question how they butter Jesus up, halfway through verse 16, we read, Teacher, that they said, We know that you're a man of integrity and that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. Don't worry, Jesus, about this complex situation we're about to dump you in. Say what you think. Tell the truth. And the irony, I suppose, is that Jesus does tell the truth, always. Elsewhere, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Even when he's surrounded by people who oppose him, he speaks the truth. I don't know if you found this, but I know that I can be tempted at times to soften the truth, to make life easier for me. I like things to be my way. Uh, or even for my listener, uh, easier for me, I can make excuses. I, I know this is the true way to live, God, but I'm tired and whatever else. Easier for my listener because I like being liked. But ultimately, it's no good for them if I do that or, or for me. Tim Keller famously said, if your God never disagrees with you, you might just be worshipping an idolised version of yourself. As unpopular as the truth might be at times, the truth is not flexible and Jesus tells the truth. How's he going to do that here? Is it right to pay the tax to Caesar or not? They ask in verse 17. I love this. Knowing that he's, they're going to try and trap him, Jesus just calls them hypocrites and he answers anyway. By the way, if you've been reading with us in Matthew's gospel, the setting is still the temple area. And Jesus, he asks them to go and get the coin that's used for paying this tax, the, the denarius. They bring the coin and this coin, apparently, it had printed on it Tiberius Caesar son of the divine Augustus, Augustus. In Jewish thinking, the divine one is the Lord himself and him alone. A serious Jew would not have a coin which reads Caesar, son of the divine in the temple area. How disrespectful. Worshipping the Lord while holding a coin that claims someone else's divinity. But they have the coin. Perhaps this shows up some of their hypocrisy. In any case, Jesus, uh, Jesus uh, the, the question, uh, Jesus asks whose image is on this coin and whose inscription? Caesar, they answer. And Jesus says, so give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Pretty simple. It's his coin. Give it back to him. Just as today God wants his people to pay taxes, living in submission, ordering ourselves under the authority that God has placed over us, so it was with them. This very economy that you first century Jewish people participate in, the Roman Empire, it belongs to Caesar, so pay your tax. But the second part of Jesus' response, the end of verse 21, he says, and give to God what is God's. You may know that the Bible's worldview is that 
everyone is created in the image of God. In the first chapter of the Bible, we read, in the image of God, he created them male and female. Pay your tax, of course, says Jesus. There's Caesar's inscription. There's his image. Give it to him. It's his. But the more wonderful and the more challenging aspect of what Jesus says here is all people everywhere bear the image of God. It means all people everywhere have an obligation to him. We're to give our whole selves to him. Give to God what is God's. You reckon that's a challenging truth? This means there's, there's a form of religion that God doesn't like. You know, the, the old tipping of the hat to the God of the Bible. I'll tack you on to everything else, Lord. I'll give you this or, or that, but not my whole self. God wants everything. It also means if you think pretty poorly of yourself, know that you're really valuable in God's sight. He made you in his image. You have intrinsic worth. Not by, you're not valued by what you can produce or, or how smart you, you happen to be or even how good you can be. But you were created in God's image. You are God's masterpiece. Yeah, even you. They're trying to trap Jesus. And he says, pay your taxes and give your whole self to God. See verse 22, when they heard this, they were amazed. And they left him and went away. Who's testing who here? The Pharisees and the Herodians have had a go. It's the Sadducees' turn to try and trap Jesus. Verse 23 to 33, that the Sadducees, by the way, they didn't like the Pharisees, uh, but united in their opposition to Jesus. If the Pharisees were guilty of adding to God's work, uh, law, uh, you know, extra rules, the Sadducees were guilty of subtracting from it. They only believed in the first five books of the Bible. And we see verse 23, they didn't believe in the resurrection. The Sadducees were sad, you see, because they didn't believe in the resurrection. It's a great way to remember them, isn't it? And their question is designed to ridicule rather than get information. They pick up a law from Deuteronomy chapter 25 where if brothers are living together and one of them dies without having a son, the dead husband's brother was to marry the widow of uh, the first, uh, marry the widow and the firstborn child was to take the dead brother's name. It's about carrying on the brother's name. It's about caring for a widow. The Sadducees are not arguing against this custom, but they're using it to make the resurrection seem ridiculous. See verse 25. Now there were seven brothers among us. Let's just hypothetically, Jesus, there were seven brothers among us. 
And the first one married and died. And since he had no children, he left his wife to his brother. And they're saying, verse 26, this happens not once, but twice or twice or three times, but seven times over and over again. She's had seven husbands. And at that point, surely you want to think, probably just leave that alone, guys. But uh, verse 27 and 28, the woman dies. Jesus, in the resurrection, who's she going to be married to? They're saying to Jesus, this idea of resurrection is ridiculous. How does he respond? Verse 29, I love this. You're in error because you don't know the scriptures or the power of God. Marriage is not a thing for eternity. Uh, Verse 30 In the new creation, people will be like angels, says Jesus. Yes, we'll be physically, bodily risen, like I'll be me and you'll be you. We know that that's clear from the scriptures. But there'll be a difference. There'll be something glorious about this new creation. In some sense, God's people risen to life will be like the angels. And as wonderful as human marriage can possibly be at its best, it is but an illustration for Christ's relationship with his church. Human marriage points beyond itself to something greater. Actually, human marriage not running into eternity, this might be a comfort for those struggling in a a difficult marriage. Don't worry, it's not forever. A comfort for those who don't end up marrying and therefore seeking to honour God. They don't get to experience sex in this life. The new creation will be better. We can miss out now on all kinds of things. For the new creation will be a whole nother level. This life is just the beginning and the one to come will be so much more. That might open up a big conversation, I'm not sure. But you see Jesus, he continues to argue his point that these Sadducees, they don't believe in the resurrection. This life is all that there is. And so Jesus uses part of the Bible that they actually believe in. Verse 32, he quotes Exodus 3. See this, verse 32. Have you not, you know, you don't know the scriptures. This is what the scriptures say. I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Exodus 3 was written years after Abraham, Isaac and Jacob had passed away, but it reads present tense as though they're living. I am the God of. So Jesus says he is the God, not the God of the dead, but the living You don't know the power of God, you Sadducees. This God raises the dead to life. And we read verse 33, when the crowds heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. Jesus having silenced the Sadducees, we come to the third attempt to trap, to test. It's verses 34 to 40, and it's the Pharisees again, this time an expert in the law. His question, verse 36, teacher, it's respectful, isn't it? Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? 
Apparently the rabbis uh, would divide the commandments into light and weighty, uh, important and lesser important. And there would be differing opinions. So as soon as a rabbi puts forward his position, there's going to be debate. Someone's going to disagree. And it seems this teacher is just trying to bring up the conflict. But Jesus' response leads to silence. They might have expected him to go to the Ten Commandments. I don't know. But instead, he summarizes all the law and the prophets. And in verse 37, he quotes part of the Bible that an Israelite was to recite daily. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. They ask for one. (laughs) Love the Lord. And he gives them two. For love of God always leads to love of neighbor. And the second says Jesus is like it. Love your neighbor as your Self, Love of God always leads to love of neighbour, those fellow image bearers, all people made in the image of God. Who's testing who here? Three groups trying to trap Jesus, but he speaks the truth and they can't say a word. It's wonderful, isn't it? Uh, Do you think Jesus' explanation of what's happening in these verses is just wonderful? Because I reckon that's what that last little bit is. Uh, It comes as a form of a question of his own. It's the last section, verse 41 to 46. Uh, Verse 42, what do you think about the Messiah, says Jesus to the Pharisees? Whose son is he? The son of David, they replied. And that's the right answer, isn't it? Uh, As Bible readers to Samuel chapter 7, there's that promise that there'll be a a king on on David's throne. He's to be born in the line of David, this king. But you see Jesus' follow-up in verse 43. He said to them, well, how then? How then is it that David, speaking by the Spirit in this Psalm 110, calls him Lord... For he says, the Lord, that is God, says to my Lord, that is the long-awaited king born in the line of David, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Verse 45. If then David calls him, the son that would come from him, if David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? Normally the son is considered lesser. Yeah. But you see, Jesus is showing that this this son of David is greater than David. How? He's before David. That is, Jesus, the Messiah, is God eternal. Eternally begotten from the Father, God the Son himself, Jesus is claiming to be God. And what's so wonderful, I love as this continues, what is happening right before our eyes as we're reading Matthew's gospel, as these groups, they try and test Jesus, they try and trap him, they put him on trial, we see Jesus' enemies being put under his feet. Who's really being tested here? 
Jesus is the one with authority, all authority. Jesus is the one in control. It's not Jesus on the stand, but it's those who oppose him. Do you sometimes feel like you need to defend Jesus? Like he's weak or something? As we live in a world that opposes him, this is helpful, isn't it? He's got it. We might have some big questions for God, like those testing Jesus. There will be various truths that that we struggle with. If our God always agrees with us, we may be worshipping an idolised version of ourselves. And questions are good, aren't they, and appropriate. We, We want to be a community that asks questions of God and more and more. But do you find when you start looking carefully at Jesus with an open mind, he begins to question you? There was the director of a large art gallery in Europe, uh, and the, the gallery was you know, filled with the masterpieces. I know nothing about painting, but Monet, Rembrandt, Van Gogh, is that how you say it? I think it's right. Yeah, painting's worth millions. I, I think a Van Gogh sold in the night, back in the 90s for 80-something million dollars. This is some art exhibition. And some young bloke wanders in, a guy who knows a little bit about art, you know, uh, and he starts sort of looking around and, and critiquing the, the, these artworks, just muttering under his breath, Monet, uh, too much light. Uh, Rembrandt, the shading is uh, just, just muttering to, to himself. And the director of the art gallery is observing, he's, he's noticing what's going on, and eventually he just gets sick of this arrogant young man. And he says to the young bloke, We're in Europe, so it's polite. Friend, friend, it's not the paintings that are being judged, but those that look at them. Your response to these great pieces of work will determine the kind of person that you are. Do you see that this is the way with Jesus? We may, as we consider the claims of Jesus, we may think we're putting him on trial. What's your view on this or or that? But do you see that it's the other way around? How we respond to him, that's what matters. And, And sure, pay your taxes, says Jesus. But as God's image bearer, you have an obligation to the mighty loving God who made you. Give your whole self to him. And know the scriptures and the power of God. The resurrection is real. This life is just the beginning. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength and love your neighbour as yourself. As we respond to the person and work of Jesus, as he goes to the cross 
to die in our place. Know that ultimately his enemies will be just a footstool for his feet. It's powerful imagery, isn't it? There's Jesus on the lounge with his feet up on the footstool. So if you haven't already been reconciled to God through Jesus Christ, please surrender to him while there is still time. Maybe now that I'm a little older, uh, I was wise enough to take a few steps back and lean against the wall in that gymnasium last Saturday at the kids' birthday party instead of taking someone on who was obviously my superior. Let's pray that we might be a people who rightly understand Jesus' authority and that those around us might do the same. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for his power, his authority. We thank you for the way that he could just put uh, the powers of his day in their place. And we thank you, Lord, for the eternal son who became man, died on that cross in our place, and that one day his enemies will be a footstool for his feet. Lord, help us and those around us by your spirit, by your word and spirit, be reconciled to you today. And Lord, as we trust in Jesus, help us have such a confidence in him that we not, might not feel as though we have to defend him or be embarrassed by him. But we pray that we would speak of him. That we would worship him. And Father, Son and Holy Spirit, we metaphorically get on our knees before you now and we praise you praying in his name. Amen.